I worship at Metro because of the power of God. I think we have to be authentic and come and give gratitude to him. We have to give thanksgiving to him. And when you come with your heart, God accept the uh, gratitude that you gave him. And I worship because of that, because God is awesome, is everlasting, is the one that always deserves all the honor and glory, and we give him all the adoration. This is the Metropolitan United Methodist Church Podcast. Would you all join me in a prayer? Author of life, as we reflect on your word, May your spirit rest among us and transform us in heart and mind and soul. Amen. When I was invited to be with all of you today, I was both excited and a little bit intimidated, if I'm being honest. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but your reputation precedes you. Without exception, When I mentioned to friends and colleagues that I would be here with all of you today, they spoke glowingly of your works of justice and mercy in the world. So I confess that I struggled to figure out what I could possibly have to say to all of you. And the thing that kept running through my mind was that this is the final day of the year, the final sermon of a long year. And if this has been a long, frustrating year for someone like me, who spends my time sitting in a classroom talking about justice, then I have to imagine that it has been even more so for those of you who are out here doing the work of justice every day. As I think back on the year, I think of all the times that I turned on the news only to be disappointed by those who would call themselves Christian. And I hope you'll forgive me if that feels like a statement that's too political for the pulpit. However, when we are told that we do not have money for people to have the medicines that they need, or we're told that we don't have the money for people to have food on their tables and a roof over their head, or that we don't have money to provide refuge to those fleeing warfare and violence, these are not merely political statements. And when we are told that we do have the money to build more bombs and wage more wars, and that we do have the money so that the rich don't have to pay their fair share, these are not merely political statements. These are statements of life and death. These are matters of righteousness. These are matters of holiness. And if we look to just about any chapter from the book of Isaiah, we see these same issues on the lips of the prophet. We hear about the plight of the poor. We hear about the plight of the most vulnerable in society. We also hear about the corruption and the wickedness of the rich and the powerful. We hear about the struggle between the forces of life and the forces of evil. But more than this, Through the prophet, we hear hope and good news, which is where today's reading comes in. 
Despite everything that the prophet has seen and lived through, we find him rejoicing in the Lord. How is it that the prophet can see all the ugliness that life has to offer, but can still maintain an audacious sense of hope? As I read the book of Isaiah, I think of the kind of conversations I've had with many of my friends in the past year. These were a conversation with friends who are deeply committed to various causes, people who work with resettlement agencies helping to build new lives for people, people who seek to end the exploitation of their labor, people who are on the verge of losing access to vital medicines. And all these friends not only give themselves to those causes that they support, but they have spent countless hours writing letters and making phone calls to those in power, pleading with them to act for justice. And too often, those in power choose not to hear the voices of the people they represent, people like my friends. And so it has become a vital and a necessary practice for us to uplift each other in the times when we feel powerless. And I wonder if Isaiah and the prophets of his day felt as we do. I wonder how often they spoke truth to power and watched their words fall on deaf ears. I wonder how often they felt powerless and alone. But then I see that the prophet still rejoices in the Lord, and I know that even if he was hounded by these doubts and these fears, that he maintained his joy nonetheless. And the next thought that occurs to me is that if Isaiah can do it, then so can we. Perhaps the clue to the prophet's demeanor can be found in the second half of our reading. See, the first half of our reading is easy to understand. We know that it's the prophet who exalts in God with his whole being. We know that it's the prophet who is clothed in the garments of salvation and the robes of righteousness. And we know that it's the prophet proclaiming the work of the Lord to raise up righteousness among the nations. But as the text continues into chapter 62, things become a little more ambiguous. We still see a speaker continuing to use the I pronoun. I will not keep silent. I will not rest. But the question is whether these are the words of the prophet or the words of the Lord. And looking through the commentaries, there's a fair amount of disagreement among scholars. So given that either reading is plausible, I want to spend some time considering the implications of each. In other words, what do we learn about the prophetic hope of Isaiah if we read these vows as belonging to the prophet or as belonging to God? The first possibility is that there is no change in speaker from one chapter to the next. That the prophet rejoices at the end of 61 and makes the vows of chapter 62. This is perhaps the more obvious of the readings and also maybe the more relatable reading. We can identify with the prophet making these proclamations. Indeed, it has been quite a year for those who will not keep silent for the sake of righteousness. We have seen the continued witness of movements like Black Lives Matter, who speak out against police brutality and systemic injustice. But we also have seen them joined by millions of others who took to the streets to speak for the dignity of women or to speak against attempts to ban people from entering this country based on the color of their skin, their country of origin, and the faith they profess. So too have we seen the cultural shock from the Me Too movement, bringing to light decades of predatory practices and rocking industries and politics to their very cores.
I have no doubt that in such movements we bear witness to modern-day prophetic actions. If we see the words of today's reading as being those of the prophet, then it follows that such prophetic action today is mirroring the call to live a life committed to holy justice. However, there are two points which I would suggest make this reading of Scripture troubling. First is the promise not to rest. While such an urge is common and understandable among those who seek to end suffering in the world, it's not necessarily a healthy urge. In the end, such an urge actually leads to burnout and the loss of compassionate people for movements for justice. I'm reminded in particular of a story shared by my homiletics professor, Dr. Valerie Bridgman. As she welcomed all of us back to yet another year of seminary, she told us of a conversation she had with a friend while in Ferguson in the aftermath of the shooting of Michael Brown. The crowds had spent day after day, night after night, seeking accountability from the police department, which meant day after day, night after night, of tending to the bodies and spirits of those who had been involved in encounters with the police. It was at this point, carrying the exhaustion of several days, that Dr. V was approached by a friend who told her it was time to get some rest. Of course, she insisted there was too much still to do for her to get some rest. In response, she was told something that sticks with me still. Go to sleep. The world will still be on fire tomorrow. And maybe this sounds pessimistic, but it is a startling reminder that the work of justice is not a sprint. It is a relay. Rest is not only a necessity, but it is an acknowledgement that we do the work of justice as a team. And we must have the humility to trust others to do their part so that we can contribute our best as well. And this leads me to my second concern with reading this scripture as the words of the prophet, that we would fall into the trap of overvaluing our own ability. Remember that the prophet has just proclaimed in the previous verse that God will bring forth righteousness like the sprouts of a garden. If the prophet alone can fix the world, then what need have we of grace? It cannot merely be a matter of human intention. I know that I am too imperfect, too finite, too limited to bear such a burden. It must be that God has a role to play in bringing about the redemption of creation. So should we assume then, as some scholars do, that this passage is spoken from the perspective of God? Such a reading seems to address the concerns I have just mentioned. Although God may rest in Genesis, it's only after finishing the work of creation. And it sure seems to me that the work of bringing about the righteousness in this world is not yet complete. So we have no reason to believe that God will rest before finishing the work. What the Lord has promised through the prophet, the Lord can and will accomplish. Therefore, it seems reasonable to conclude that a promise to not rest is in keeping with God's character. However, I do have trouble with aspects of this interpretation as well. My first concern is that we, if we give up the work of justice to God, we run the risk of complacency. In other words, if we read Isaiah and think that God is going to make things right without our help, this creates a lack of urgency. We see this kind of thinking and the idea that we're just waiting for Jesus to come back 
and set everything right. Even in popular culture, we see this kind of passive hope. I'm reminded of a song by John Mayer that was popular when I was in college called Waiting on the World to Change. Early in the song, he sings, Now we see everything that's going wrong with the world and those who lead it. We just feel like we don't have the means to rise above and beat it. So we keep waiting, waiting on the world to change. I can't believe, though, that this sort of fatalistic acceptance is what is intended by the scripture. We're not called to a life of giving in to the world around us, but instead to a life of freedom through Christ. And second, there's also this question about not keeping silent. How many times do we hear people ask questions like, why does God continue to allow bad things to happen in the world? If God is truly loving, is truly just, then why do we not hear the voice of God today? And it's these kind of questions that lead me to offer a third approach to this scripture. Why not lean into the ambiguity? Why not read it as both the language of the prophet and God working together? Such a reading invites us into a life of full participation in the work of God. Because I think that we do hear the voice of God in those who refuse to keep silent. God speaks through the people of God. When Nazis and Klansmen descended on Charlottesville earlier this year, they encountered the peaceful presence of the people of God, firmly declaring that the, the demonic forces of hatred and racism have no place in this world. When Congress was crafting a tax bill that harms the most vulnerable members of our society, they were met by the people of God, sharing the word of God's love revealed in Scripture. The witness of such individuals is a reminder that we, too, are called to a life of participation and cooperation with God. We are called to embody the love of God. For the sake of righteousness, we will not keep silent. For the sake of justice, God will not rest. We shall walk humbly with our God, doing justice and loving kindness. As we are in the Christmas season, the prophet Isaiah reaches through time to remind us that we have a God who continues to be in relationship with us. And as I draw to a close, let me say that I will continue to pray for all of you into the coming year. I will pray that you continue to walk hand in hand with our Lord, performing works of justice and mercy. I will pray that the Holy Spirit gives you the strength to do what you are called to do, the joy to remain hopeful, and the peace to be content in whatever circumstances you face. I will also pray that you find the moments to rest, relax, and recharge, trusting that God is working through your friends and colleagues. And I hope that you too will pray for me. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Metro UMC podcast. Please join us for worship at 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings or at 5 o'clock on Tuesdays for 5 o'clock rush. You can find more information at metroumc.org or on Facebook under Metropolitan United Methodist Church.
Metropolitan United Methodist Church is a biblically-based, multicultural, diverse, Christ-centered congregation where everyone is welcome.